2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC.
0: This is Joe Saul Seahy, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast.
2: What drives you? I spent most of my life being consumed by an insatiable sense of drive. I was born the youngest of three. Deeply introspective, I was quick to wallow in my own faults as I watched my elder brothers grow and achieve. Learning disabled, awkward, scrawny, I had every reason to hide under the covers and give up, which pushed me even harder. I was so afraid of being worthless, I was driven by fear. As a college kid, everything changed. Super successful and academically oriented, I spent Saturday mornings in the library while everyone else was off at the stadium watching football games. Nights, weekends, early mornings, nothing could separate me from my books. I was going to be a doctor. I was committed to making something of myself. I was driven by achievement. Fast forward. Burned out and exhausted by 20 years of practicing medicine, I realized that the daily fear, stress, and lack of sleep were no longer nurturing my soul. A deep dive into my own personal finances made it pretty clear that I no longer had to fill my days with patient visits and hospital rounds. I could change. I could rearrange my life to better reflect a deeper sense of purpose and meaning. But what the heck did that look like? I spent my childhood being driven by fear my young adulthood by achievement, and now in my 40s, I was going to try to pivot yet once again. No less driven than before, but now I would strive to be driven by something wholly different. Joy, creativity, connection. What drives you? Joe High is one of the most driven people I know. I could regale you with a litany of achievements, proclamations, titles, and other accolades, but the list is far too long. You all know that he is co-host to the Stacking Benjamins and Money with Friends podcasts. He is also a collaborator on Earn and Invest, and I look up to him as a mentor and friend. In one of life's great ironies, he goes by the Twitter handle Average Joe Money. While a clever play off his name and a bow to helping the everyday person with their money, the moniker does a lousy job of describing the man. Joe High is anything but average. He is extraordinary. Joe, welcome to the show.
0: Wow, man. Do I owe you 20 bucks now?
2: At least. I figure I'm turning the tables on you because once a month you get to roast me on the Stacking Benjamin show. So now's my chance.
0: Oh boy. I'm sweating already, as you can
2: tell. I can see. So we better jump into it before you lose your nerve. Sure. So I've heard you talk about your darkest moment shortly after starting your professional career. You were a newly minted financial planner and just got a huge bonus and then suddenly everything went wrong. What happened?
0: Back then everything was commission based. I mean if there were fee only, only planners I had no idea who they were. I had just received this monster commission working with the new client. By the way, I pulled myself out of some pretty horrific debt and made the biggest mistake ever that I told my clients not to do, which was I took every dime of that commission and I paid off the rest of my debt. And I was finally, finally had my head above water. My client went to Japan. He was a Japanese national who was working in the Detroit area, and six months later came back to the United States. And I hadn't been able to go over the investments with him. He decided that he didn't want them. Immediately, the firm that I worked for took back all of this money that I had used. I didn't have the money anymore. It was gone. It was my debt was paid off. That sparked a year of no income. My wife was still in school and I had no money coming in. I had to work to repay all this money that I had used to pay off my debt. So now I had a bigger debt than I'd ever had in my entire life.
2: Not exactly how you thought you were going to begin your professional career.
0: No, it's really bad when you're advising other people on their money, and I've got bill collectors calling me. And I would tell people that I died because I really hope that I, I had died some days. I mean, and you knew it was a bill collector. Everybody pronounces my name wrong. They'd say Mister he. No, he died, and that would work for maybe three, four, five days. But they come back around. I had a guy one time yell at me like I'm twelve years old, and I remember him saying to me, "Why can't you borrow this money from a family member to pay us back?" I didn't. Even want to tell him that not only was my mother-in-law babysitting my kids for free, but they were also, between my parents, my in-laws, everybody, people are buying us groceries, two young kids at the time. My twins were maybe between age of one and age of two. It was ugly.
2: It sounds like a low time. How did you feel about the profession at that time? I've seen you say something to the extent that being a financial advisor was 85% of a right fit for you. Was it feeling good at that time? I loved it.
0: I have this natural curiosity, so this engineer mentality where I like to know how things work. I like to dive in and see the machinations of stuff. And I remember the dude who recruited me said, and this is a quote, he said, we don't hire people like you, but I think you'd be good at this. And what he meant by that was, I was an English creative writing major. I had no financial background. I was a money disaster. But the fact was, I could talk about stuff like the guy next door. I had this mechanic at one point And I remember thinking to myself that I love the way he talked about my car. I love the fact that my car was a she and she was having problems breathing. And so he was going to fix that. And I loved it. For some reason, I was able to talk about money in a similar way. I felt great about that. I didn't like the commission thing. People talk about commission-based salespeople don't do right by the client. I think it's largely garbage. I think most people don't want to put a round peg in a square hole. I certainly didn't. But I also didn't like the fact that if you were in my office and I didn't sell something to you, I might not get a paycheck. I had to pretend like I was calm, cool, and collected at a time in my life where none of those were true. I wasn't calm, cool, or collected. So did I like it? I was fascinated by it. I thought money was so cool and fun. But by the same token, the sales aspect, I didn't like. But you know what? Not to belabor this point, but I learned so much by learning sales skills. Like I learned that to some degree, we're all salespeople. Like there's something that I want to do that Cheryl, my spouse, doesn't want to do. I'm going to have to sell her on it. I have to sell people on listening to our show. I'm selling myself all the time. And I learned there's a way to do that and a way not to do that. And generally when I hear, man, so-and-so is a great salesperson, they're a pretty crappy salesperson. I think the best salespeople are so sublime about the way that they sell that you either don't know that they're selling or maybe they don't even know that they're selling because they're not really selling as much as they're just trying to find a connection where one really
2: exists. One thing I've noticed about you as I've gotten to know you better is that you light up in front of a microphone. In some ways, I almost look at you as what I'd call a front man, right? You're the kind of guy who comes alive on stage or when he's talking to a group of people. Was some of that aspect missing in financial advising? No, but I definitely like the audience uh, bigger
0: than me and one or two other people. That wasn't what I disliked. What I really disliked, the 15% that I didn't like was this. I didn't like it when a client came to me and they didn't want to know how stuff worked. They wanted to abdicate. They wanted to throw it at me and I will take care of it, make everything great, and they don't have to know anything. I really get frustrated by that still. I think well, the fun part of this is knowing how it works, right? My goal was always if I got hit by a bus, I would have my clients to know more than they did before they knew me. I was always trying to teach and there are so many people out there that just think, hey, I can hire somebody to do this, but think about how important your money is. I would never do that. I don't agree with something I read that Susie Orman wrote in her first book where she said, you shouldn't hire an advisor because nobody is going to care about your money as much as you. I personally think that having a disinterested third party is a great idea. Somebody who knows the stuff, but they're not emotionally invested. So they're going to help you make much less emotional decisions about your money. I also didn't like the fact I felt sometimes so much emotion around my client's goals that if they weren't meeting their goal, I would really take it hard Not just when the market went down like it's been down recently. Oh, those times, just emotionally, I had a hard time with that. But also, when we would be working hard toward a goal and my client would self-sabotage and I couldn't get them out of that, I would really get frustrated with my ability to help somebody see what I saw pretty clearly, which was that they were going the wrong direction.
2: Let's pivot a little bit to your childhood. What did you daydream about doing when you were a little kid?
0: (laughs) Oh, man. I feel like I should be laying on the couch. When I was a kid, I was always performing. I thought in junior high, I was going to be an architect. That was a weird thing. We'll start at the very beginning. When I was really young, I wanted to be the milkman because the milkman would come to our house and my mom would always tell me that it was the milkman's fault when chocolate milk didn't get dropped off. It wasn't her fault. My mom knew better than anybody, taught me at an early age how to throw somebody else under the bus. Found out later that was all a big lie. Even then at a young age, I remember we'd put records on and we would perform like song and dance routines for my parents. Whenever we had a get together of my cousins, I always had to orchestrate a talent show. My parents, I felt so bad for them. Well, at the time I didn't, I thought they had it great listening to me. But now looking back, I'm like, holy cow, the amount of time that they spent. I always, always wanted to perform. I had one of these little tape recorders. And I love listening to baseball games on the radio with my dad. I had this little baseball game of my own when I was maybe 11 or 12. I would press the recorder and I would play the game. I'd play both teams. But that part wasn't the cool part. The cool part was that I was the announcer. I would announce every guy coming up to bat, just like I'd hear Ernie Harwell, the Detroit Tigers do. I had fake commercials between the innings and I would sit and listen to those things forever forever afterwards. I thought that was, that was fun. And it's funny looking back at that day and looking at what I do now, we still make fake
2: commercials. <laughs> <laughs> and you also had quite an entrepreneurial bent as a kid. In fact, one of your first businesses maybe pulled in some of that performance aspect with building a business. Yeah. My dad was
0: drunk at my cousin's wedding and the DJ was horrible. And my dad started insisting that his two boys could do a better job DJing than that loser up on stage. And so the next day, when he was much more sober, we questioned him about it. My dad kind of backed off that a little bit. He's like, I'd love to see you guys create this business, but here's what you're going to have to do you're going to have to research all the equipment, find out what it costs try to lower those costs as much as possible. Let's talk about marketing. What's your marketing plan going to be? How's your business going to operate? And my brother and I had to do all this research and then we had to build a business plan for my dad. My dad then loaned us money to start this business and we went and bought all this stuff and we were horrible DJs.
2: (laughs) You actually had to pitch your dad. You had to do a full
0: business pitch to him. Oh, I had to. Absolutely. The first dance we did was horrible. Second one was a little better. By the end of two or three years, we were rolling and things were going really well. And I ended up being a DJ doing weddings and parties, dances, almost every Thursday, Friday and Saturday for 10 years.
2: How did it feel to be in front of the microphone, to be the front man?
0: I liked surprising and delighting people. My theory on music was this. You like a certain kind of music. The person standing next to you likes a different type of music. I really found it exciting when I could get you to dance to that person's favorite song. When maybe when you showed up at that dance, you didn't think that you would like that song. So we had this whole theory of DJing, my brother and I. We had some long talks about how this would work. So if I played a hit song in one genre and I got everybody excited on the dance floor, I could then play an older hit song in a different genre that you knew And then I could play a song that wasn't that big of a hit in a third genre, but now that I've got everybody on the dance floor. So as an example, back toward the end of my DJing career, Prince, 1999, right? Going to party like it's 1999. By the time I ended my DJ career, that song was moldy. Everybody'd heard it a million times. You're just sick of it. If I play that at the start of the night, it's a horrible song. But if I played brand new music from all these different genres and you thought I was a great DJ, I play that toward the end of the night when everybody's drunk and you think I'm amazing because now I'm playing this retro hit music. So it was all about the timing of when different things happen. I like that.
2: So it sounds like early on you realized that it wasn't just the information you were presenting, but... There was a real skill in being the presenter and putting that information together correctly in an appealing way.
0: I think no matter what we do, there's an entertainment factor. Even Michael Eisner, who talked about how they compete against UPS, thinking, well, how do they compete against UPS? He's like, because we're trying to make people happy. UPS wants to make people happy. So to some degree, we can learn from these people that are doing things differently than we are.
2: Coming out of college, knowing that you had been in the DJ business, and I know that you continued it after college, did you start looking for jobs that use this skill set and this joy of performing and being the front man? Was that part of what you were looking for in a job?
0: No. <laughs>
2: no. And nope. why, why not?
0: Well, I'll tell you, I started at first, I was going to form a DJ company and I did. I created a corporation. I created the wrong type of corporation, which is why I know a lot about how to set up a company because I did the wrong thing. I set up a C corporation. Don't do that, kids. I set that up and it was rotten. But what I found, I got to the point that I had three disc jockey systems, but the margins were much smaller than anything that I could have ever lived off of. I would have had to have a lot more systems. Out doing, you know, maybe five or six weddings, I might've been able to make some money off of that, which led me to something that I still believe at this day. This is a good takeaway for me. Whenever a job has a low barrier of entry, it's going to be incredibly difficult to make a living at it, which by the way, you know, people complain about multi-level marketing as an example. Multi level marketing, some of these products that multi level marketing companies sell, fantastic products, but they're sold the wrong way because of the fact that there's a very low barrier of entry to getting in on those. I buy a $100 kit, I convince you to sell stuff, and then there's all this garbage about, hey, you don't have to work very hard. You'll put your feet up and somebody else will do all the work and you'll make a bunch of money. And it's never been the case. You don't see a McDonald's owner where it costs a ton of money to buy into a McDonald's franchise. You don't see a McDonald's owner go, dude, I'm going to get three other McDonald's owners. I will put my feet up all day and the money will just roll in. You just don't see that.
2: So out of college, you kept up the DJ business, but you got other jobs to supplement your income. I did. I worked at a water treatment company
0: where we would put in water filters and water purifiers, and I would set those appointments. So my job was to get you on the phone and to convince you to have us come out and test your water so that hopefully we could sell you a
2: water softener. You almost accidentally lost that job. Is that right?
0: Yeah. I was talking about my work so much, my DJ company so much because I was trying to get off the ground that my boss brought me upstairs and told me that I was going to get fired because of the fact that I was talking too much about my other job, which also, by the way, taught me a very valuable lesson about work and shutting your mouth and being a good team player. But the sad thing was, was that's when I realized that my life wasn't going the way that I wanted it to go. I was still taking classes in college. It took me seven years to get my bachelor's, mostly because I didn't want to take on a lot of debt. And so I was working and using the money to live off of and to pay for a couple classes at a time. So it wasn't that I was, wasn't capable. It was that I was pretty allergic to getting in more over my head. But during that time, I'm working all these dead-end jobs. Uh, You know, I have the DJ company, which is killing me at night. I mean, I didn't realize at the time I'm young. I'm having fun. (laughs) It's cool. I'm where the party is. You know, the first half of the party is always fun. Nobody talks about cleaning up your stuff that has beer spilled all over it at 2.30 in the morning. That part was the grind. I was building radiation walls at the cyclotron at Michigan State University. I was a paper boy for a little bit. I'm doing all these jobs and I, all of a sudden, when my boss was going to fire me, I realized I need to start taking myself more seriously. My real life needed to be more than Joey playing DJ and working these pretty dead-end part-time jobs. And that's when my friend called me. My boss had already lost me mentally when he threatened to fire me. I was gone mentally and I was looking for a new opportunity. And that's when the friend called and said, We don't hire people like you, but I think you'd be really good at this.
2: And that was your intro into financial advising. Into financial advising. The guy that knew nothing about money. And I find it really interesting. I don't want to go in depth about financial advising with you, but very few financial advisors find themselves on radio and TV. And that seems to be a big part of your trajectory. How and why? This is actually really funny.
0: I worked in a market group for American Express financial advisors at the time, where we had a fantastic leader. And this guy's leadership style was different than most of the nation for American Express. And what he believed was that we would give and a lot of people listening to this has probably gotten these letters in the mail before. And we call it in the business, the rubber chicken dinner circuit, where they serve some chicken dinner at a decent restaurant and they get up and talk to you about financial planning in my case, or now it seems like the ones I get are always some annuity pitch, right? So he believed though, instead of having every advisor give these separately, we would do better if we trained just a few people to give these speeches. I applied to be one of the Twelve people in the Detroit area that would give those talks, and I got hired. And I remember I got hired because of my DJ ability. And I said, "Well, I don't have been a financial planner for a couple of years." And I said, "I don't really know a lot of the concept. I mean, I know a bunch of concepts. I knew enough to pass tests, and I had a few clients, but I was nowhere near one of the most skilled practitioners." And they said, "No, no, no. We need somebody who can stand in front of the room and not be intimidated, and can lead an audience. We'll teach you what to say. Which, by the way, is kind of scary." I mean, in in retrospect, we'll tell you all the garbage you have to say, but you have to be able to deliver it. And clearly with my 10 years of DJ experience, getting in front of a group of people wasn't scary to me. So not only did I join that group, I was very good at it. I had the best conversion rate of any of our speakers, meaning more people would listen to me talk and would say, "Yep, I want to sign up for an advisor. I definitely want to come in for a consultation than any other speaker we had, which made me then the leader of the group after about a year and a half, I became our head speaker of that department. And then there was a big shakeup at American Express. And when the shakeup happened, I decided to stay with the company. A bunch of people left the company. And when I stayed, American Express brought in a Public relations company to kind of tell everybody everything was all right when it's not clearly not all right. This PR company and our leadership decided we would have experts in the media to deal with the media in all kinds of different areas. And I was the college planning expert. So initially, I got on TV once and I was in a newspaper once locally here. And then the other experts in other areas. They just never were available when the media wanted them. And I remember one guy saying, Point Blake, he's like, listen, I got client meetings. Tell Channel 7 I will be able to do this next Tuesday between three and four. And TV stations don't, don't work like don't, like I'm, I mean, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. I know that they don't work that way. They want it when they want it. And so I started getting calls from the PR company going, hey, I know you're the college guy, but we've got this deal on TV. Could you be here in like an hour and a half? Yes. You kidding me? Absolutely, I can do that. And so before I knew it, I was then one of not 12 people in Detroit speaking on behalf of the company. I became one of 12 people in America speaking on behalf of the company as a subject matter expert. I wasn't part of the PR piece of American Express. I was one of 12 financial advisors who would give media interviews on behalf of the company talking about wills or college savings or planning for retirement or whatever it might be.
2: Now, looking back in retrospect, was that almost the beginning of the end of your financial advising career? I mean, at some point, it became very clear to you that you excelled at getting up and delivering a message. And that was something that wasn't common, like a lot of people couldn't do. Do you think that sowed the seed that eventually led to your leaving financial advising?
0: No. (laughs) I mean, I'd love to say yes, but no. I had a mentor named Chris, who is a fantastic guy. He was the best leader because he didn't care what the upper management people thought of him. He cared about what I thought of him. And so he was this ground up, this groundswell. Everybody that worked with Chris loved him. I'll tell you, his bosses always made fun of him, which was really funny because he had kind of a goofy personality, but he always made sure we got the stuff that we needed when we needed it. He was fantastic. One day he sent out this email telling everybody that he was leaving and he was 37. And he was going to leave the company. He built up a nice sum of stock. American Express stock had done really well over the time that he had been there. He was a single guy. He'd saved a bunch of money, and he said this cool thing in his letter. He said, "I have other mountains I want to climb, and I don't. I don't know how long I'll be around. So while I like it, I don't love it." And there's other things I want to do. And by the way, when he said mountains that I want to climb, he climbed on Everest twice. He climbed almost every major peak around the world. And now he runs an adventure travel company. That made me look inward. I built up at that point a really nice practice. Now I know what I'm doing. Not only am I way out of debt, but now I've become a good saver. I know how to teach people that. I've done all this TV, radio, all this stuff. And I thought to myself, man, I'm like Chris. I like it, but I don't love it. And while I'm young, I was 40. I was 40 now that I've done this thing for money, why wouldn't I go do the thing I love now that I have enough money? I sold my business. I got a big barrel of cash. And I went back to school to become a high school teacher and a track coach because I wanted to teach kids. And I I met my wife coaching middle
2: school track, and it was really, really fun. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. USA.com. That's landroverusa.com. What specifically do you feel like you were missing as an advisor that you were going to get as a track coach and a high school teacher? What was the missing ingredient?
0: The clients that really didn't want to learn. Don't get me wrong, being a high school teacher, there's lots of kids that don't want to learn, but they're there specifically to learn. I think a lot of my clients didn't think they were there specifically to learn about money. They were there to hand it off to me and have me take care of it for them. That was
2: specifically what was missing. And so you went and became a teacher and you lived happily ever after?
0: Nope. So I start taking classes, which by the way is bizarre. I remember being in this class and I had a woman sitting next to me named Whitney. And Whitney was a great student, by the way. Fantastic lab partner on this stuff we had to do together. But one day I'm sitting there and Whitney's talking and I see her class ring I graduated from high school in 1986. And my partner's class ring says like 2010. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. So that was pretty well. But I enjoyed my classes, but what they taught me was something that, as I was saying goodbye to my clients, my clients that are teachers kept telling me, Joe, you're going to hate being a teacher. You're just teaching to the test. You're not really trying to teach kids. You're trying to make sure that the school district can check boxes. And also my teachers then Taught me as I was taking these classes that I was going to be fighting administration all the time. I remember one professor telling me, Don't send a kid to the principal because the principal will never solve it the way you want it solved. They can't today. They can't do it. So solve it in the classroom. And by the way, you don't have any leverage. You just have to be stern enough and put up a good enough face that the kids just won't mess with you. And so during that time, I had friends that were doing. PR, other financial advisors doing PR. So I started writing their TV scripts and I was charging them some money. And then I started writing some of my other friends' newsletters to their clients. One of my friends said he loved all the cool things that they did, hypothetically, because I would say, hey, my family and I went camping. And as I was putting the fire together, it reminded me of diversification and how different things burn differently. He would always tell me, he's like, I love the things that I don't do that I do in my newsletter. But I added all this stuff up and I'm at home in shorts and a t-shirt having a blast writing all this financial knowledge. Really, I'm trying to teach people about money. And here's the big indictment. I'm making as much as a first year high school teacher makes. And so then I rethought, do I really want to work for somebody else or do I want to go back to my DJ days where I work for myself and be self-employed? Then I decided to start blogging and it all went downhill from there.
2: I was about to say, it's still a far cry from being on like 3,000 podcasts at one time. How did you go from writing PR and really seems like a very solitary type employment to being out there and interacting with people?
0: First of all, I know myself well enough to know I do better pack hunting. And I talk about that leader at American Express. He said, if you've got the right people, it doesn't matter if it's a pizzeria or a dress shop or financial planning. If you've got the right people, you will succeed with the right people around you. And I still believe that. And I still have lots of coaches. I love the team that we work with today with the Stacking Benjamins team. It's a great group of people. I had a friend who I knew in Detroit who, when I started talking about blogging, he convinced me to let him do it with me. And we started doing that together and our blog was getting no traction. So I just went online looking for other people who were doing what I was doing. And I found this community of financial bloggers. At the time, it was a network that was led by a guy who's infamous in this community, the guy who's financial samurai. It was Sam Dogen. Sam had this community called the UKZ Network, and then I found a bunch of people there, and then I discovered FinCon, and it was all downhill.
2: And how did you start podcasting?
0: Oh, so my partner, who's OG on the show, was the guy who convinced me to blog with me. And he and I had done radio before. He lived close to the radio station in Detroit that bought time on a local station and I was the host. So my job was to bring in all these American Express and Ameriprise later advisors and show everybody just how brilliant we were as a company. After about a year, I remember... Nobody at Ameriprise or American Express was taking it seriously. And I slowed down taking it seriously to the point that the show was on Saturday morning and there would be a Saturday morning. I'd wake up and go, oh, crap. I didn't get a guest for today. So I'm driving to the station and I'm on my phone and I'm calling OG because he lives three blocks from the station and he was great radio. And I called him and said, hey, man, you want to be on the radio, you know, for the fourth week in a row with me? (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. There were days I was so late that he would start the show without me. And he would just talk until we got there. So he and I started talking about reprising those days. And I had a lot of people talking to me because I listened to a lot of podcasts. One of my favorite podcasts was one of the first 100 podcasts ever created. And of course, it was a podcast about board games. I had people tell me all the time, like, dude, you did so much radio. You've done television. For nine years, I was the Channel 7 guy in Detroit doing money talk. Why wouldn't I have a podcast? And I said, there's nothing for me to say that Susie Orman and Dave Ramsey aren't already saying. And I don't want to yell at people about their money. It just didn't appeal to me. One day I was mowing my lawn and I remember hearing the show Car Talk, which is national public radio. For people that don't know Car Talk, it's this show where they talk about cars and it's kind of car culture. But the thing I loved about Car Talk was it was funny and you don't learn crap about a car. In fact, one guy died almost two years ago now, and they still play episodes of Car Talk because it's still relevant. They're evergreen and they're fun. And all of a sudden, man, that day, Doc, I had the idea. There was nobody that I knew who wasn't trying to be a mentor, who was just doing financial radio surround sound. I went to OG and I said, hey, I got this idea for a show. I finally have one. And then we did the dumbest thing ever. We waited a year. And it wasn't that we were unconfident about our ability to do the show. It was a mystery to me how I would get this sound of my voice right now up into the cloud to your headphones. And... I still don't like things that I think in my head are complex and I try to stay away from complexity. It just seemed too complex, which is funny because now you and I are sitting here kind of laughing about this. It's the easiest thing in the world. And people kept telling me it's easy. Finally, we said, all right, let's quit procrastinating. Let's do it. And we put together a show that we knew was going to die. We decided it was going to be 13 episodes, almost like spring training baseball. We called it the worst of the free financial advisor because our site at the time was the free financial advisor. And A, it was going to be bad. And B, we wanted to be funny, so we launched.
2: And that eventually turned into Stacking Benjamins at some point.
0: Yeah, at about episode number six of that show, we figured out that the technology was not as hard as we thought. We'd learned that with the particular mic we were using that we were talking to the wrong side of it. <laughs> and so we figured that out, like all these little things we figured out in six episodes. We rebranded as a show called Two Guys in Your Money. While we thought 13 episodes was going to be funny for the worst of the free financial advisor, the next thing was funny was Two Guys and Your Money died at episode 69, which is also funny, but it was inadvertent. At that point, Two Guys in Your Money sounded too much like two men in a truck. It was too generic. It wasn't funny enough. We also wanted to make the show funnier. We realized we were leaning into the comedy more. And so we rebranded again after 69 episodes to Stacking Benjamins. And that show, still, we didn't lean enough into the comedy. I did what I believe anybody should do. Once again, surrounding yourself with smart people. I started going to podcasting conferences at a conference called Podcast Movement in Fort Worth, Texas. I got this phenomenal idea. I needed to stop blogging. I need to stop doing all these side projects, writing for other people. I needed to just podcast. And I needed to embrace the fact that we weren't two financial advisors on the show who were kind of funny. This was meant to be more of a funny, laid back, relaxed show. I needed to lean all the way into it. I needed to forget anything about being serious and just lean hard into it. So we changed out our theme music. We gave my mom's neighbor, Doug, a much bigger part. We modeled it after The Tonight Show, where he's kind of like our Tonight Show announcer. We created storylines for the show. Every show is going to have a story arc where Doug's screwing something up at the start of the show. In the middle of the show, everybody knows he's messing it up. But him, at the end of the show, he kind of figures it out. That would tangentially have something to do with whatever the topic was. I also went back to my DJ days and said, if we're going to do several different topics on the show, topic A is going to look completely different than topic B. Once again, I'm going to try to make you appreciate somebody else's music. So I'm hopefully going to get you to listen to something about estate planning, even if you're 25, so that when this is important to you later on, you will know about it. Then I'll go into something about college planning right after. So I'm going to try to build this texture back and forth of if we have five different things on a show, they're all going to be different. We made all those moves. Immediately, a third of our listeners went bye-bye. I was on vacation in Puerto Rico, and I got this email from a woman telling me that I killed her favorite show. And that was just one of many, many emails I got that I wrecked my show. And I tried to tell this particular woman that that was because we weren't good at it yet. It's going to get better. I had to believe in myself and that it was going to get better. I remember her writing back to me because I thought she wanted to actually talk about this, right? (laughs) So I had like this 3,000 word. She didn't want to talk about it. She wrote me back something that said, you're the most egotistical SOB. You just need to change it back. And what was cool was, and very, very comforting was six months later, she wrote me back and said, you're right. And I love the show more than ever. And by the way, within 90 days the show not only rebounded, but man, you could see it hockey stick. And then the awards started coming. Kiplinger called us best podcast and the art of manliness put us on a list. And then it was just, if there was a list, we were on that list. It was pretty cool. It was neat. We don't make the show for that, but it was very comforting to know that the changes that we made to make the show more accessible was something that people liked.
2: Obviously what you do now is quite a bit more complicated, but there's an echo of that little Joe Saul as an eight year old making recordings about a baseball game into his recorder, right? I mean, in, in a lot of ways, what you do now today looks a lot like what you started doing with the DJing, with the kind of fun stuff you were doing on your own when you were a little kid. I can't believe that I get to do this every day.
0: You know, Cheryl and I were talking about retirement. And we both love what we do, but she said, I'm probably 10 years away from not wanting to do this anymore and go do something else. And then she started laughing and I'm like, what's so funny? She's like, you're going to die with a microphone in front of you. I'm like, yes, I will. There is nothing more fun than us making ourselves laugh. And I know that our show is on the right trajectory when I'm cracking up. And that's all I was trying to do with that tape recorder was just make myself laugh. If I can make myself laugh and make a few other people laugh, then hey, we've done something a lot of fun.
2: So is it safe to say that what you're doing now is much more of a 100% as opposed to the financial advising, which was an 85% fit?
0: Oh, it's absolutely 100%. And I know that because I like every aspect of the job. I like every stinking aspect of the job. I like giving competent financial advice. I like disguising it as you're not really learning anything. I like that. I did get sick of that at one point. We overdid that for a while, saying that, you know, if you learn something, keep it to yourself. And I remember getting some reviews from people saying, I don't learn nearly as much on Joe's show as I do on Afford Anything, as an example. And while Paula has a phenomenal show, I realized that I needed to give you some flags to show you that I'm just kidding. And I'm really very serious about the fact that we want to teach you five things every show. So instead of going deep on one thing, I'm trying to give you five. So we actually changed the ending where we asked Doug, what should we have learned today? And it's basically me telling my audience that, yep, we've been kidding around. So I like that. I like the production. I like the uh, equipment. I like the guests. I like the sponsors. I can't think of one piece I don't like.
2: Your enjoyment and joy in making the show is clear to me, certainly in our creative meetings. Do me a favor, mentally open up your calendar right now. How much clear blank space is there in a given week? On my calendar, there is none. <laughs> there, there, there is
0: none. I'm going uh, way faster than I probably should.
2: And how many podcasts do you think you record between your show, Money with Friends, Guesting with Paula Pant, et cetera? How many shows do you think you record in an average week? I'm involved directly in the making of
0: nine shows a week, three for Stacking Benjamin, six for Money with Friends. And then I'm tangentially involved in Paula's Once a Month. I'm on that show. I also host the Money and Media podcast. That's just part of being a part of the FinCon community. I host that show weekly. And then I'm in the background here a little bit helping you.
2: And I once heard you say on another interview that every time you switch on the mic, If it's going to be a good show, you get that sense of fear. Do you still have that even now after doing all this?
0: Yes. If I don't have it, it's going to be a really crappy show. If I'm not a little nervous and not sure what I'm going to say,
2: it's going to be pretty bad. That's part of what makes it good for you.
0: Yeah, I think so. You know, there's this phrase that I really like that Nike had a long time ago before Just Do It. It was in one of my running magazines when I was running track in high school. And it said, feel the fear, but do it anyway. And even though I can see why Nike doesn't have that as a slogan anymore, it's not as catchy as just do it. I feel a lot of fear all the time. I feel a ton of fear and I'm always pushing through fear. And it's funny because I know I come by that honestly. I've had discussions with my mom. She feels a lot of fear. My aunts and uncles feel a lot of fear. I can tell by some of the moves that they make. I don't tell my uncle, I think he's afraid of things, but you can just see by some of the life decisions he made that a lot of those are fear-based. So I'm always trying to push myself to get through that fear.
2: I recently did an episode with Grant Baldwin, and we were talking about the fear and anxiety of public speaking, and he really reframed that fear for me. He said, I don't think about that as fear anymore. I think about that as excitement. His point was, if you don't have that excitement before you go on and give a talk, it's going to be a lousy talk. And I think that's similar to what you're expressing here is that maybe what we call fear, what doctors love to call that kind of sympathetic outflow of nerves that cause our heart to race and our respirations to speed up is actually our excitement of creating and doing something really great.
0: There's a piece that we're going to be doing very soon on the show that I'm nervous about. I think you've heard it. It is super funny, but it certainly is pushing the envelope. And so there still is a fear you, you know, so sometimes it's excitement, and other times it's fear. There's times when I get done editing a show and it's getting ready to go out, and I'm very excited about it. I'm also fearful for people to hear it, but that fear really is excitement. With this particular thing that we're about to do, it kind of is straight up fear, but it's so damn funny.
2: And yet you're still willing to push the envelope.
0: Yeah, but I think about grounding like, who are we really? And who do we want to be? And is this part of our brand or is it not a part of our brand? And if I push the envelope too much in this area, does it begin to defy me or do I think I got to go back there again? And I start thinking about, I never want to ask my listener what they want from me. I like it when they give me that opinion, but I think my job is to be a leader, to lead my audience. By the same token, I'm also afraid that I might lose them.
2: What makes you more excited? An episode that you think are going to get really high downloads, but maybe it's a little bit vanilla, or an episode that you really dig and think is great, but you know that won't get the traction that some of your other episodes do?
0: I like the episodes that are unexpected which by definition means they're probably not going to get the downloads at first. And what I've heard from my audience over longer periods of time are that those are the episodes that keep them coming back. I know our biggest episodes every quarter are going to be people that paid off a tremendous amount of debt. That's always going to be my biggest episode or some title that promises a secret around making money more quickly. Those are always going to be the titles that are the biggest thing. And I do those because I know my audience wants them And I also know that I like doing those. But if I did those all the time, it wouldn't be as much fun as talking to the guy that wrote a biography about P.T. Barnum or the woman who went and interviewed dominatrixes or the guy that broke the cannonball run record by driving illegally from New York to California faster than anybody else. Like talk about planning. That was a really cool episode about planning. If we can come at it from a different way, that gets me much more excited. I don't like doing a straightforward episode.
2: Being a front man takes energy, and I'm thinking about your trajectory. Being a DJ and keeping a party going for three or four hours is not easy. Being a financial advisor and getting ready to be on TV and radio takes a lot of preparation and excitement and a little bit of guts. And then doing or being involved in nine separate podcast productions every week sounds somewhat exhausting. Do you ever get tired of the spotlight?
0: Yes. And I found that we have to have a rhythm for that reason. We used to not take breaks. And now every eight weeks, we have a week off. And that week, by the way, we're not off. We're just kind of catching up and letting it breathe a little bit. I travel a lot just to get out and get away. I also hired some coaches just recently who are teaching me this idea of free days. And on free days, I'm not allowed to look at my phone. I'm not allowed to take calls from the team or read anything about our show. I got to tell you, I have a hell of a hard time with that. But I'm also realizing that the more I do that, a couple things happen. I'm better when I'm here if I take that break. Also, my team around me gets better. Every day they own the show more and more. And I found that it's so much more fun to have co-ownership than it is to be a solo guy with helpers. It is way more fun. I've also had to take my health more seriously. There's a great Harvard Business Review piece several years ago that became a book by a guy named Jim Lair and Tony Schwartz, these two great thinkers. It's chasing energy, not time. I'm always trying to control my energy level over controlling my time.
2: Going back to my introduction, I've always been impressed on how much drive you have. And as someone who's worked with you, I've found you to be always available and helpful. I could imagine at this point in your career, it is sometimes hard to back away. I know that everyone involved in most of the things you do are very appreciative of your personal touch and of your being available. And certainly, I've enjoyed your effect on earn and invest. And I think having you aboard as a mentor and as a creative collaborator has just done wonderful things for me and the show. Clearly, I feel your sense of drive to create something special in almost every project you do. I know everyone who has fallen in love with Stacking Benjamins and Money with Friends appreciates it greatly.
0: Well, thanks, man. It always makes it easier not to get into an I love you, man thing. (laughs) But it always (laughs) makes it easier when the people around you are easy to work with. And obviously... It is so fun collaborating with you. And some of the discussions we had, like the whole earn and invest thing was hilarious. I came to you, can I tell that story? Yes, go ahead. What I've learned as I've gotten older is to control my idea flow. There's stuff that you can implement and stuff that you can't. Everybody has a lot of great ideas. It's not about that. It's about implementation and execution. We've been thinking that what's up next, you and I thought that that doesn't say enough about the show. And you've talked about this before. But I saw this graphic of the and sign I don't even remember whose logo it was. But then we looked at Crate and Barrel. We knew it was going to be something and something because we had to have that badass and sign right in the middle of it. And you and I had gone through several different ideas, but that single idea stuck in our head. And it was so funny to take that little germ of an idea. And you and I must have talked for, geez, an hour, throwing out name after name after name. And then the obvious one, and I don't remember if
2: you said it or if I said it, but when Earn it and Best came up, we just kind of looked at each other like, there it is. That was it. It's all about the symbol. It's called the ampersand. That's what the and sign is called. All right. Well, I think we should wrap up. Tell me what's coming up next in your life and what's up next with Stacking Benjamins.
0: Wow. So next in my life, I am in the middle of a big thing that I can't talk about, but it dominates my time and it's very exciting It's going to expand our audience and put us on a bigger stage. But I can't say any more than that about it. But I'm very excited about that. So for me and for our team, I'm excited about that. Coming up on Stacking Benjamins is some super fun people. We've got John Johnson coming on who talks about polls and data and about how you can make data say anything you want. And he talks about the lies in data and the misinformation that spread using data. And I love that as a guy that watched the election four years ago, right? Where all the pollsters were wrong. Not as worried about that. But I am worried about when I see a chart on a real estate company site that goes up and left and it said that it's engineered for superior results. What real estate company doesn't want to be engineered for superior results? And it was a forward-looking graph, which if that were mutual fund would, would be illegal. Charts and graphs are presented a certain way, so I think that's pretty exciting. We also have the woman who is the top auctioneer for uh, Sotheby's coming. We're going to talk about negotiating and about the art of the sale.
2: It's going to be pretty interesting. Sounds exciting. Where can people find you on the internet, on social media, if they want to get in contact with you? Find me on Twitter,
0: AverageJoeMoney, Joe at StackingBenjamins.com,
2: if you want to write me an email and chat, because I love to chat. And then facebook.com forward slash Benjamins. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Joe Salcihai. That's a wrap. Are you ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy... I wish I could listen to another episode of the Earn and Invest podcast. Well, now you can engage in our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.earnandinvest.com. That's E-A-R-N-A-N-D-I-N-V-E-S-T dot Or you can check us out on Facebook at the Earn and Invest Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com/backslash Facebook. That's D I V E R S E F I.com/backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So I'd like to welcome Joshua Sheets from the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. Joshua has been on what we used to call the What's Up Next Podcast, Now Earn and Invest, talking about religion and personal finance. But today we're going to do something completely different and talk about the importance of price setting. And this was sparked by a Facebook post I put out about the sale of medical masks and how they're being auctioned off. Before we get to that, Joshua, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back, Doc. Appreciate it. It's great to talk to you. I love to get in deep with you about elucidating these economic principles because I know from listening to your podcast, you've spent a lot of time thinking about them. And so let's jump into the article. There was an article by Bloomberg put out by Polly Mosens and William Turton titled, More Than 750,000 Masks auction for huge markup while hospitals run out. It says, at a time when shortages of protective gear are putting healthcare workers at risk, more than 750,000 medical grade masks went up for online auction in Texas. Bottles of Purell sold for $40. A box of 16 masks went for $170. They could be had at retail for $3 each before the coronavirus. The week-long bidding that ended Tuesday was hosted by the website Auctions Unlimited. The health-related products pulled in $154,000 in sales, according to Houston-based website owner Tim Worstel. He estimated that he personally made as much as $40,000 on the sales. When I put this up in the Facebook group, I clearly felt that there was going to be outrage, and indeed, a lot of the responses were people who thought it was outrageous. Joshua, you surprised me by saying, wait a minute here, maybe there's nothing wrong with this. Before we get into the specifics of the article, let's talk a little bit about how we determine prices in the first place. What do we do in a normal non-emergency market?
1: I think the first thing to recognize is when you're in a free market or a relatively free market... Price is simply determined by what buyers are willing to pay and what sellers are willing to sell for. The market comes to a price based upon those two factors. Now, there are markets in which this is not the case, but what I'm going to talk about today, we're not going to be dealing with that. So, for example, you come from the medical world. It's a little bit hard in the medical world to apply market economics to running a hospital. Uh, And I think everybody recognizes that there may be some places where we're not dealing with market economics. But what I want to emphasize for people to think about is how market economics provides an understanding of what's happening and also will help us to get more things available. So before we talk about price, I want to give two points by way of preamble. Number one, what I have to say here is not popular. It's not commonly accepted or commonly believed. But for listeners, I would ask you, please give it a listen and assume the best about me and assume the best about all of us. We all want the same things. We all want every medical provider to have full protective equipment. We want all everybody to be safe. We want things to be available. So assume the best, even if you think that my opinion is not particularly uh, politically correct. We all want the same thing. The second thing is I would just point out that this event that we're dealing with, with COVID-19, is a really a unique event. Now it is not what some people would call a black swan event. In fact, Taleb, who is the person who originated that term, which has become part of the common lexicon, uh, he specifically identified that pandemics are not black swans. Pandemics are predictable. They are, you can foresee them. For years, I've been talking about preparedness, financial preparedness, physical preparedness, and I've always felt that a pandemic was the most certain, horrible, worst-case tragedy that could be had. And I think that it's important to recognize that could we have foreseen this event? Well, to some degree, yes. And to some degree, no. There have been some things about it that have shocked me. And we'll talk in a minute about the global nature of this. It's really incredible. But we could have foreseen this. And so we need to take some responsibility and recognize that a lot of the shortages that we're all dealing with are our own fault. It's our fault as individual citizens for not simply having a stockpile of masks ourselves. It's also the fault of us who are involved in hospital administration, government preparedness planning, et cetera. This was totally foreseeable. I've been warning people on Radical Personal Finance about this since January. The news started to come out in late December. In January, I decided it was a big enough risk. This was foreseeable. But now let's go back to the market situation. The first thing to recognize is that what we're, what we're talking about here is usually called price gouging. Now, I don't like that term. I'll define it in a moment. But price gouging is usually defined as an increase in price due to some changes in the market economy. And so the way that prices are calculated varies depending on whether we're in an emergency or we're not an emergency, whether we're in a shortage, or whether we're not in a shortage. In general, in a free market, the price of an object is determined simply by supply and demand. As people demand more of it, suppliers can increase the price, but then competitors come in, they provide more of the item, and so the price generally decreases. And in most markets, there'll be an equilibrium based upon the actual um, cost of manufacturing, the cost of goods involved in the product, and then there'll also be an equilibrium based upon how many people are competing for it. So you'll pay more for an item if you go to a little out-of-the-way gas station that's 400 miles from nowhere. The Snickers bar costs more at that gas station than it does at the big box Costco right in the middle of town where there's a big supply of it. In an emergency, however, especially in the United States, a lot of times the governments impose price fixing laws. Now, I'm going to use the term price fixing laws because that's what they are. They're usually popularly called price gouging laws or anti price gouging laws. And what they say is you can't increase the price during an emergency because you're somehow taking advantage of people who are trying to buy the item. But what these are technically is price fixing laws. The government is fixing fixing the price. And the thesis that I'm going to defend is very simple. Price fixing laws create in some circumstances or at the very least exacerbate shortages in the market. So what people think is actually something that's charitable that's bringing more people in and more people can afford the item what it's actually doing is it's creating shortages. Now another point of preamble as I explain this is I do not think that most businesses should raise their prices in response to a big surge in demand. So if you're running a local grocery store and all of a sudden you see that people are buying up bottles of hand sanitizer left and right, I don't think that it would be a wise business practice for that grocer to triple the price of their product. But not because I think it would be bad for the market. I just think that the perception would be that people would feel taken advantage of. And so they generally would be offended by the that and they might choose not to patronize that store. It's better for that store to run out of hand sanitizer than it is to offend their customers. But the price fixing laws that are imposed by the government create the shortages because they don't allow the price to change to moderate the demand of what people are actually asking for. So I'm going to use personal protective equipment. Six months ago, any of us had the opportunity to go ahead and and engage in personal protective equipment at a very cheap price. But, Doc, did you go back and did you stock up on PPE back then? I did not. So we all have that opportunity. The prices were very low. The supply was widely available, but we didn't do that. Now, today, you would like to go out and stock up on PPE, on personal protective equipment, but you can't. So the question, Doc, is what has changed between six months ago versus today? Demand. Demand. A mask is a much more valuable thing today. The average person was in Home Depot and they walked past the respirator masks and they said, that's no big deal. But today, you know, there's a deadly illness out there that could kill me and a mask might save my life. And so this item is much more valuable today than it was six months ago. So the question is, it's genuinely more valuable, but what happens when we freeze the price of the item? What happens if the price of that respirator mask is not allowed to increase to reflect its higher value? Doc, what happens? Eventually, we get shortages. Eventually, you get shortages. And I would say very quickly, you get shortages. You have shortages. And sometimes these shortages are short-term. Sometimes they're longer-term. Now, in general, I think specifically with PPE, I would not anticipate that the shortage of PPE in the United States would go on for much more than a couple of weeks. I think that there is such an intense national focus that through whatever means, they'll nationalize all the factories and produce PPE widely. So I don't think expect this particular shortage to be long-term, but you will have shortages. And sometimes they're short-term, sometimes they're long-term. But the reason the shortage exists is because people perceive a higher value of the item but it still has a very low cost. And so they'll go out and they'll buy as much as possible. And often this turns into a mini epidemic of its own, a mini epidemic of human psychology. For example, the great toilet paper crisis of 2020. (laughs) I think there are some good reasons to believe that this was a genuine shortage because a lot of people would use toilet paper in commercial facilities and not so much in their homes. But I actually think this was largely a factor of human psychology. People had never thought that, toilet paper might be in short supply. And then they started to see other people going and doing it. So they went out and got more and that created more of a shortage. And then people respond to that and they go out and get more and more and more of it. And that creates a worse and worse shortage. And it just, it snowballs very quickly to the fact that people are posting on social media. Look, I got toilet paper. I'm so rich now. (laughs) And yet it's really genuinely a good example of how important it is. Now let's run two scenarios through, and I'm going to focus on masks and toilet paper. Let's run two scenarios through. First, we'll do toilet paper. The amount of our budgets that we spend on toilet paper is, for most of us, completely inconsequential. We would not pay any attention whatsoever to buying one case of toilet paper or four cases of toilet paper. It doesn't matter. So when the price is low, but you see that this thing might be in short supply and you recognize that this is an item that I might want to use many times in the coming weeks, there's no reason not to stock up on it. There's no reason to buy three or four cases of it. The problem is that helps to create the shortage because you're actually buying more of it. Now, if the price of toilet paper, there started to be an increase in demand and all of a sudden the price of toilet paper doubled, most of us would still probably buy more because it's still such a small percentage of our budget. But if you went to the store and you saw that a case of toilet paper were priced at $100 for a case, I wouldn't buy four extra cases. And so if the price is allowed to increase, that actually moderates the demand. That makes it likely that fewer people will stock up on so many cases. Because you look at that and you say, this is stupid. There's not actually going to be a shortage of toilet paper. There's just a temporary imbalance in the marketplace. The United States produces plenty of toilet paper. I'm not going to buy four cases at $100 a piece. I might buy one extra, but I'm not going to buy four extra. So allowing the price to increase moderates the demand. However, if you don't allow the price to increase, You still have that same high demand and people are motivated to buy more and more of it because it's super cheap, but now it's valuable because I might run out. And so the only way that in a world with price fixing laws that you moderate things is rationing. The problem is rationing through the use of, hey, you can only buy two cases of toilet paper. Rationing doesn't solve the problem because people, they can go around the rationing. They can go to Costco two days in a row. They can go to multiple stores. And you're very likely to do that if you actually need the toilet paper. Now let's go to the other side. What about increasing supply? This is where, for me, when I saw the story about that you posted about the mask, this is why it's so important. If you have a high price, then that gives incentive for entrepreneurs to come in and to increase the supply. The example I would use is this. There's plenty of masks available all around the world. The problem is they're just not in the United States. So I'm an entrepreneur. Let's say I saw an opportunity to buy a container load of masks in China uh, where they're plentiful, they're abundant, they're cheap, and they're widely available. I know they're available because there was a news story last week where the Patriots organization, the NFL football team, Robert Kraft, they sent their airplane to China to buy masks, and they came back with 1.2 million masks, which is awesome that they were able to do that. Now, if they can do that, that means that I as an entrepreneur could probably find that. Now, I appreciate that Robert Kraft and the Patriots organization, they have the opportunity to send their airplane, but I don't have an airplane. I can't afford to go and out of my pocket buy 1.2 million masks unless I see a way that I could possibly make a profit on it. So let's say I could go and I could buy a container load of masks in China for, say, $50,000 and I could bring them to the United States. I could mark them up and I could sell them for $500,000 with a big markup there and wide demand. As an entrepreneur, that would be very compelling to me, an opportunity to, massive, to 10x my money in a very short period of time. But in order to do that, I need to be able to sell those masks at a very high price. Now, what would they do, though, if I actually did that in the United States? They would do two things. Number one, they would write articles and angry social media posts about what a jerk I was selling these masks for so much money. And number two, they would do what the FBI did to a man in Brooklyn last week. They would come in, they would surveil my house, they would send armed cops with guns to physically steal the masks out of my house, and then they would take them and they would give them away. So as an entrepreneur, I have no incentive because of the price-fixing laws. I have no incentive to go and increase the supply of masks in the United States. So that exacerbates the shortage, especially in the short term. And this is where price-fixing laws are so destructive. In the long term, over you know, a month from now, there's going to be plenty of masks available, but you need them today. And the only people who can fill that need quickly are sometimes huge governmental organizations that can just nationalize industries and steal stuff, or entrepreneurs who see the chance to make a quick buck and are willing to take a risk with $50,000 to buy a container load of masks. So when the price increases, what it does is it creates an opportunity for entrepreneurs to see, hey, I can make money. And so if you allow the price to increase, it creates incentive to increase the supply, which solves the shortage. But when you don't allow the price to increase, any entrepreneur who is who has a brain doesn't go after the opportunity. Or Or if they do have the ability to source a container load of masks in China, they don't send it to the United States. They send it somewhere where they're actually willing to pay for it. And so what happens is those shortages are created because there's an imbalance between the value of the item and the low price. But they're continued based upon the price-fixing laws that cause people to still buy, 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 buy instead of moderating their behavior to buy less because it's too expensive now and because they don't give opportunity or incentive for sellers to come in and increase the supply. So people feel good about price-fixing laws. They feel good about the fact that, well, you can't charge more for a mask, but they meanwhile, they go around without protection. And it hurts them because, yes, in theory, I could buy it for a dollar a mask, but in reality, I can't get it at any price. And it hurts individuals. It hurts It hurts the country. It hurts the medical professionals that we all care about. And so it's, it's desperately destructive.
2: Listening to your points, there are two things that really come to mind. One is based on what you're saying, that price fixing creates much longer term shortages than the short term shortages we occasionally get by not price fixing. That's point one. Right. The other point is, There's also this issue of innovation, right? So if you can't get toilet paper, maybe you are a bidet salesman and you are going to create um, a portable bidet that can hook up to your toilet and people will buy it like gangbusters. So the other issue is, are we inhibiting innovation if we go ahead and price
1: fix also? Right, right. And I think this is where, let me go out to a big, just to the big picture and we'll stay focused on masks. If the price of masks in the marketplace, what you can sell a mask for, 10x is overnight. And there's this huge demand, as I expect to be the case, because all of a sudden you're going to have a nation of 300 and something million people that was not a mask wearing culture. Um, You know, the Hong Kong uh, culture is a mask wearing culture. The Taiwanese, they're accustomed to wearing masks. The Japanese, they wear masks all the time. But the United States of America was not a mask wearing culture. But we're going to quickly probably become a mask wearing culture. So there's a huge increase in demand all of a sudden. Well, this creates opportunity for an entrepreneur to come in, innovate, and to establish something new. When the price of something is allowed to adjust and all of a sudden they can sell it for 10X higher, it gives the ability for small entrepreneurs to compete. Because prior to this point, when you could go to the market and buy a stack of 3M masks for pennies each, you can't compete as a home entrepreneur with a sewing machine with 3M. They've got these huge factories, tremendous economies of scale. You cannot compete. You can't go as a little factory owner and say, I'm going to buy a couple of machines and we're going to start creating a few thousand masks a day. But when all of a sudden there's a 10x increase in price, it opens up the market to these small entrepreneurs, the home entrepreneur with their sewing machine, the small factory to buy a couple of machines or retrofit a couple of machines. It creates opportunities for them to actually compete in the marketplace. But when the price is not allowed to rise because of the price fixing laws, then they're frozen out. And so the only thing that the governments can now do is instead of depending on there being a bigger supply from entrepreneurs, the only thing that the governments can do is try to nationalize industries and go in and take the supply and take over the countries under the Defense Production Act, et cetera, which doesn't have the same impact. Now, in time, those activities, I think, will solve the shortage because there's a general sense of altruism, right? 3M wants to keep making masks. Um, The government wants to see masks made, and so at some way, that shortage will be solved fairly quickly. But you hit the nail on the head where you said the shortage is extended because the entrepreneur is the one who has to step in really quickly and solve that problem. And he knows if I move fast today, I get that container load of masks, and I move fast, I may be able to make a quick buck. But this opportunity is not going to be here a month from now. 3M is going to be here a month from now, but that. Entrepreneur needs the financial incentive for them to be willing to invest into shipping it and adjusting the, the location and or increasing the supply. And I want to point out, those are the two areas where you have to function. When you have a market imbalance, and you have a broken market where there's shortages, there are two possible reasons for it. One is a misallocation of resources. The people who have the resources aren't the ones who need them the most. And so maybe those resources, all the masks are sitting in China, or maybe all the masks, I'm hoarding them in my garage. And so there's a misallocation of resources. The second is there's just simply a shortage in the supply. And so if you allow the prices to increase, it solves both of those problems. If I'm sitting on a stockpile of a thousand masks in my garage, now, of course, as an altruistic person, I'm going to be motivated to give some of those to my family, to my friends, to to medical personnel that I know. But I'm probably not going to want to give away all a thousand of them to random strangers in a state that I don't even go to where where the need is. But I might be willing to sell them to those people who need them. And so when you have the price rise, you have the opportunity to change that allocation of resources. When the price rises, the resources that are in China flow to the United States and the resources that are in my garage flow to the local hospital because there's a financial incentive for me to do it. I know I can't use a thousand masks in the next two weeks. And so I don't need to stockpile this many of them. Then the second thing is it solves the shortages. And we've talked about that with the entrepreneur. It makes the opportunity for the person who's out of work to say, listen, I can sit down with my sewing machine and I can use some fabric and a HEPA vacuum cleaner bag, and I can make some really high quality masks at home. And because I can sell them for a a lot of money to somebody who needs them, it's worth my doing it. And that quickly raises the supply. So by allowing the price to adjust, it feels bad in the short term because you go to the store and you to really think, Do I really want to pay 5X or 10X for this product. But in reality, at least you have the opportunity to buy that product and you don't have to face the shortage. And so you can assess if you really want it or need it rather than just simply it, the choice not being there for you. So whether we're saying
2: supply and demand or not, what it really sounds like we're talking about is market efficiency.
1: And when you mess around with market efficiency,
2: bad things happen.
1: Right. It, it is. And you cannot take away market efficiency just because there's a crisis. Market efficiency is one of those things that simply is. It's a fact of life. And so the crisis demonstrates that there's a problem, but the fastest way to solve the problem is to allow the market to equalize and to bring back a solution. And I've explained kind of how it works. And this is where I feel so bad because we all want the market to work, but you cannot deny that there's been this massive problem. And so the best way to, to quickly find a resolution to the problem is to get out of the way and let them make the decision that's in their best interest. Those who had foresight have the opportunity to profit. You know, I went out and I bought masks in January. I didn't buy a thousand of them. But at that time, I went to a couple of stores where I live and I stocked up on plenty of masks. And so I had the foresight to do that. Now, again, back to altruism. I'm, I know, Doc, you, your audience is the most altruistic audience out there. And so what I know has happened is because everybody cares deeply about their friends and loved ones and the medical professionals who need PPE. I know that every one of your audience members has drained their entire bank account, they've cashed out their 401ks, and they've gone in together with their neighbors to go and buy truckloads of masks from other countries, and they've all bought industrial sewing machines. So I'm the one who didn't do that because I'm not quite that altruistic. But you know, I'm willing to give away a few here and there to the people that I know who need them. So when you allow the market to the prices to increase, then you create an opportunity for those who had the foresight to sell them. And then you don't have to just rely on altruism. And altruism is really powerful, right? We all feel like we're in this together, but sometimes altruism in conjunction with market forces creates the best outcome for everybody. And
2: by far in that post, probably the most pushback you got was from healthcare practitioners. I could see them saying, this all sounds great. It sounds like theoretical economics, but I have to go to the hospital every day and face people coughing up this virus in my face. What do we tell the people on the front lines who indeed, at least at this point, are not getting the PPE they need? Because I could see people saying, this all sounds great, but what do I do today?
1: So I would say it's important to not let our hurt and our frustration override a good logical analysis. And so here's what I would say would be inconsequential. This This will sound harsh, and I'm sorry that it is, but it is true. I cannot imagine how any healthcare worker would not think ahead to see something that is so important that could save your life and not stockpile your own supplies. I can't imagine really how any thoughtful person would not stockpile something as important as a mask just due to the, the general danger, right? In the world of preparedness, I teach classes in addition to financial planning, I teach classes on preparedness. And there's this old axiom in preparedness. It talks about planning for the different events that could that could hurt your life. And they say, there's a, they call the rule of threes. And the idea is you can go three minutes without clean air to, to, to breathe. You can go, you know, three hours with exposure to the, the elements. You can go three days without food, three three weeks without water, something like that. Basically, the point is that clean air to, to breathe is the single most important thing you can do. And so the standard practice for any of us should be to always think about what could happen that we would not have clean air to breathe and then prepare accordingly. So every household should have something like a smoke hood in their house, where if there's a house fire, then you know, the biggest risk that you face in something like a house fire is smoke inhalation. And so it's crazy for all of us not to have... Have a $10 item like a smoke hood that you could put on over your head and breathe clean air in a fire as standard equipment in our homes. Similar thing with a mask. Um, It's crazy. If you watch the news and you see something like 9-11 where buildings are falling down and people are wrapping rags around their throat, it's crazy for all of us not to stock in our workplaces. If we work in cities, simple masks, or if you live in a dust storm, things like that. Clean air is a thing that will kill you. Uh, If you don't have it, kill you so fast. Now for a healthcare worker, I can't imagine why a healthcare worker would not recognize that I need to have something like this. Most healthcare workers I know, they go out with what the CPR things that you do, the shields and whatnot, recognizing that there may come a time where I need to be protected. Most healthcare workers I know would have latex gloves in their car in case there's a car accident. And so if you apply that thinking to your life and you think about what's the equipment that you need to be able to do your job, you've got to stockpile that. Now, I understand that that 's not normal thinking; I think it should be normal thinking, similar to hospital administrators and, and emergency planners. I know that hospitals have different levels of stockpiles, but it has seemed to me that there is far too much optimism and dependence on supply chains that any reasonable hospital administrator should say, "This is the stuff that saves my the lives of my physicians we 're going to spend hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars preparing physicians and nurses to be able to do their jobs and training them." We're going to spend millions and millions of dollars on this advanced equipment and we're not going to spend millions of dollars stockpiling this basic protective protective equipment that could save the life. That's a crazy way to approach it. And yet, how many of our hospital administrators have done that? So those are the first things is let's all take responsibility for the things that we can take responsibility for. If it happened to us once, shame on us. Okay. Next time, let's not let it happen. Let's maintain our own supplies, at least some level of preparedness in our lives. Now, what solves the problem? At the end of the day, I want to solve the problem for all of the hospital workers as much as everyone else does. I don't have a perfect solution. My only point is that you can't buy the stuff right now. So regardless, we're all in the same broken system. It's not available. And my point is that if prices were allowed to adjust, there's some chance you might be able to buy this stuff. And let's talk about the difference between, you know, Joshua and a healthcare worker. Doc, if you're working in a hospital where you know you're coming in contact with COVID infected people, that mask to you might be worth 50 bucks. You might be willing to pay 50 bucks every day out of your pocket to buy that mask. Whereas Joshua, I don't need that. And so I would not, I wouldn't, go out and pay 50 bucks for a mask. And so it's worth more to you. And so if the prices were allowed to adjust, then healthcare workers would be able to buy it. And because your risk is much higher, you would now have the possibility of paying something that you need, getting something that you need and being willing to pay 50 bucks. Whereas Joshua or Joe, nobody sitting on the street, we're not going to pay 50 bucks for a silly mask. And so the supply would actually be available in your situation.
2: Let me just push back on a few of your points because I don't want to get too far past them. From a preparedness standpoint, at least from physicians and healthcare workers, there's a few problematic issues. So one being that most people have actually prepared for their own personal supply they need at home for their own safety and the safety of their family. On the other hand, it was expected that your workplace would provide protective equipment so that you could do your job correctly. Two, What they found, for instance, is one hospital went through 2 million N95 masks in a month, which means even if I wanted to stockpile my own N95s, based on how often I might have to change them and use them, I would actually have to stock up on a huge amount. And last but not least, hospitals have actually come down on physicians and told them, do not bring your own N95 masks in because we can't provide them for the whole staff. And it's not fair for you to have them when our nurses and other people don't have them. So doctors have actually been fired from hospitals for bringing in their own PPE. So I see your points and I definitely agree with a lot of them, but there are some slight extenuating circumstances when it comes to at least self-preparedness. I guess the answer could be that healthcare practitioners could just not show up to work. They could say, I have my N95s and my gloves and everything I need to take care of my family and be safe at home. I could not just show up to work, and that in itself would be a market efficiency issue because eventually the hospitals would have to come up with the materials in order to supply the physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains to come to the hospital. But there's also the Hippocratic Oath, which at least in its oldest form, and the reason most people went into healthcare is because they believe they're supposed to throw themselves out in front of the car to protect the pedestrian, so to speak. So there's a very strong psychological push for healthcare providers to put themselves in harm's way because they were brought up believing that's what their job is. So it does mess a little bit around with this idea of efficiency, at least when it comes to personal preparedness.
1: I want to be quick to affirm the points that you're saying. You know What I want to say is, It's very easy for the words that I'm saying to sound like this smug, condescending, like, you should have prepared better, (laughs) right? Um, And that's not my intention because genuinely, we're clearly facing a global emergency of amazing proportions. And as you say, when a hospital can run through millions of masks in a couple of days, a lot of times it's hard to manage those things. And I can't solve all the problems. And I'm not even making the claim that if you allowed prices to to adjust, that there would not be shortages. I would bet there probably would still be shortages. My only claim is very modest, that the shortages would be less bad, there would be fewer shortages, and they would be shorter lived if the prices were allowed to adjust. And I think that's a modest claim that regardless of these extenuating problems, I think makes sense to most people. I also don't want to, it can sound very Again, smug and conceited to try to put the blame on people. We're big on this like victim blaming thing. And I don't want to put the blame and say, well, the the physician should have just done it all and you should have figured it out. That's not my point. But I think that as a culture, we've gone so far in the direction of not trying to ever encourage someone to take responsibility for it that we run past the things that we as individuals could do. I ask if you're a nurse or if you're a physician, you could have stockpiled a few hundred masks. And would that have solved the problem for your entire hospital? No, obviously not. Those few hundred masks would be gone in one shift. But at least it may have provided you with an opportunity to to improve your situation. I can't understand. I don't know anything about medicine. I've never been in medicine. I can't understand what you're talking about where a hospital would fire a physician for wearing their own thing. I would not work in those situations. I would leave and find something else out. I I think that's crazy. Every airplane safety video says, put your own mask on before helping the person next to you. And I don't understand what good I as a physician would do if I'm visiting with dozens of patients who are probably infected with COVID. How does it help anybody if I get infected and I'm taken off the battle line? That's stupid. I guess my point is just simply to say, I agree with you. There are extenuating problems and I would not think that this would solve all the shortage problems. My only assertion is the price fixing laws make the shortages worse in the short term, and they make them last for longer than it would otherwise.
2: And I think that's a very reasonable point. And certainly, if we don't do a good job of managing our supply and demand issues right now, it could cause these prolonged shortages, which would hurt everybody and by far cause more death, destruction, and needs in the long term. So even though I bring these somewhat contradictory points to the fore, I overall agree with your general sentiment and think that we can't get so far away from basic economic principles. Otherwise, we are going to affect things and have unintended consequences we weren't
1: planning for. I think what's exposed in this situation is how weak we are as a people and as a country. I saw a post, a very poignant Twitter post, but it basically said, we're a bunch of broke people working for broke corporations renting from broke landlords that basically we're entirely broke. And so I would say that probably, although again, I don't want to be extreme, I would say that the shortage of masks is a pretty decent metaphor for our weaknesses as a culture, as a company. And that's at all levels. From us as individuals and the way that we handle our finances, we can't go a month or a few months without income. Similar things, though. What about our biggest companies? What, what I find shocking and deeply offensive is how you have the biggest companies in the land that just face a shutdown of a few weeks, and they're immediately coming with their hands open, begging for financial assistance. Without trying to unnecessary place blame on people, I think that all of us could probably sit back and do a little bit of an introspection and say, why is it that we are so weak? Why is it that we are so close to the line? Why do we not have reserves, human reserves, training reserves, mask reserves, financial reserves? Why are we so, what, what is it about our culture that we always run everything so close to the edge that there's no slack in the system? I'm an outsider, but the medical industry especially has to work on some of these problems. There's been this incredible press in our supply chains for efficiency. And the problems that you're seeing today are absolutely predictable. They have been predicted for a very long time. And it's based upon the way that we handle inventory management. It's called just-in-time inventory management. Basically, what just-in-time inventory management is, is that for maximum efficiency, you always want the supplies that your business needs to be coming in the front, the back door right when the product is going out the front front door. And so the perfect situation is that a buyer walks into your grocery store, buys a case of beer, and at that exact moment, another case of beer just magically comes out of the back warehouse into the front. And so businesses, retail businesses these days, don't generally have significant stockpiles. If you go into the back warehouse of a grocery store, there's not much back there. There's just a temporary place where a few pallets are waiting until they go up to the front shelves. That, so that's at the point of, of sale where the consumer is buying the product. Then you go into the distribution warehouses that most businesses use. And so the products are flowing in from the manufacturers to the distribution warehouses, which just a very small delay before they go out to the stores. Similarly, in factories, the perfect really run factory has raw materials coming into the factory right before they're used. And this has been since the 1980s in business theory, this has been one of the most powerful ways to increase efficiency and increase profitability in businesses. This supply chain management system is incredible. It is. It allows all of us to get more stuff at cheaper prices, and it responds very, very quickly. And if an emergency is low Localized or regional, you'll see that there's a good ability for this system to quickly adapt to it. I live in hurricane country. And when you look at hurricanes, there's always just a shortage for about a day. And then all of a sudden, all of the distribution centers send the bottled water, they send all the stuff, and the shortages disappear. The problem is, this inventory system is not effective against large scale shocks, against large scale scenarios. When you have a national or an international event, there's just no ability for that system to respond, which is why the shortages are there. Now, this has been predicted. I've talked about this for years in my work, and people smarter than me have been predicting this for many years. And so what you see is entirely predictable. Now, the problem, especially in the medical system, is that same press for efficiency has come into the medical system and i understand why you have an administrative board that's largely made up of businessmen rather than physicians medical work does not fit profitably into this profitable model i don't want my doctor looking at me and saying well if this guy doesn't die in the next 9 hours and 32 minutes then our cost per patient is going to be over like i want him to care for my life and so you've got this really bad tension right now in the medical system where you've got administrators who are who are largely focusing on profits trying to work with the physicians, but it also leads to hospitals and government preparedness people often not being as prepared as they should be. It's my understanding that like things like masks, they have an expiration date. And so if a hospital stocks up on 5 million or 50 million masks, and then they expire, they have to throw them all out. And if the pandemic didn't happen, that was a waste of money. And so I don't know how to solve that, but I think we should, all of us individually, in our own lives, in whatever, in our families, in our communities, we should look and say, how did we become so fragile as a culture? And how could and we become stronger in the future by taking responsibility for what we can take responsibility for.
2: I hate to make it sound so simplistic, but I feel like we're just talking about emergency funds again, right? In personal finance, we always love to talk about emergency funds, but maybe we haven't broadened that to emergency preparedness funds. Maybe right. we haven't broadened that to emergency skill funds. Maybe we haven't required our businesses to have those same emergency funds If we just looked at it under that lens, we would be able to manage all sorts of chaos and crisis above and beyond just not having enough money to pay for our electrical bill.
1: Exactly. I'm a fairly unique voice among financial planners. I talk mostly about money and financial planning, but I also have spoken extensively over the years and taught about emergency preparedness planning. Here's why I do that. The best form of emergency planning in the vast majority of circumstances is to have money. Money is the universal tool. Money is the most marketable commodity in the world. And so money solves the vast majority of problems that life brings at you. These are the problems that can be solved. Money should always be your first thing, which is why emergency savings, having emergency savings gets people through most scenarios, except for the scenarios in which money stops working. And except for the scenarios in which markets stop working. So what I teach is you need to think through the scenarios in which money and markets stop working and then prepare for those. So I encourage people to stockpile food, that everybody, all of us should always have at least a few months worth of a stockpile of food in our houses. Why? Because there are times when money can no longer buy you food. And in those situations, if I can't feed my children, I've got unhappy children. And so if there's a temporary shortage, a storm is coming or a pandemic, or it's just not safe for me to go to the grocery store. It's crazy in our modern world at the level of most of our finances are. It's crazy for us not to have these most basic needs set aside. So whether it's money, whether it's water, whether it's having clean air, those are the times. And if, if there's a house fire, your money doesn't get you out of that problem. Yes, the insurance policy is important. The emergency funds allow you to renovate, but you need a plan out of the house. And so you need an escape ladder. You need a smoke hood. You need smoke alarms set up. You need uh, fire extinguishers. When those things happen, it's too late to go buy them. And so so what you do is you go through your life, you systematically identify the risks that you face, and then you make sure that for the times when money is not likely to work, then you, you plan for that. And you give Joshua the choice between having a great fire insurance policy versus having a way to get out of his house quickly in the event of a fire. Seems to me that I can fix all the financial stuff down the road. So I want the fire insurance policy, but it's more important for me to first go through the fire safety plan and then go to the fire insurance policy. And we've become such a financialized culture that we've lost the wisdom of our forebears of recognizing that this kind of practical planning makes a big difference in the quality of the outcomes.
2: Joshua Sheets, I wanted to thank you for coming on and talking about supply and demand, our current market inefficiencies and preparedness, as well as emergency funds. If you enjoyed this conversation, you can find more at Radical Personal Finance. Joshua, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Doc. Was that good? I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I feel like we just kind of chatted. I was about to say we were fluent at least. <laughs> we were. Your story to me again is very interesting because I, as I started in the beginning, I see you so driven and I see you created for the mic. I like I see you as that frontman, and I I look at your career from an outsider and. It's almost like for a while you were fighting it. You were like, you were going in a different direction and you kept on trying to inch back towards it, but you didn't for some reason until you finally did. So like you got out of college and you still had the DJ business, but then you kept on trying to do other things, right? You're trying to fill in the space, make more money, find your way. Then you're like, oh, I got to get serious. So you ended up being a financial advisor, which I think totally interested you. But what made you a good financial advisor was that you were a great frontman. It wasn't necessarily that you had you developed a lot of knowledge about money. You developed a lot of interest in money. But I think you actually came at it as the little kid who was talking into the tape recorder. You were the presenter of information. Yeah. yeah. And so even when you got into that business, what did you naturally do? You ended up being the guy in front of the mic anyway. Right. Even, even in financial advising, which is not something typically where people do that. Right. And so then eventually your colleague comes to you and says, I have other mountains to climb. And you're like, yeah, I also have other mountains to climb. But what's, funny is, what's funny
0: is, in hindsight, it looks like all roads were leading to Rome, right? Mm-hmm. But it was
2: never like that. Right. And that never while you were experiencing it. Yes,
0: it was. It was. It was never the straight shot. Now it looks like all the shit that I did my entire life was a buildup to where prepared I
2: prepared you to be. And and so again, it's your story, not mine. Yeah. But I think, as an outsider, maybe all roads did lead to Rome. Yeah. Maybe they were just real circuitous. Yes, yeah, they were very. Tech moves fast.